You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Imago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. Well, in a Kansas City newspaper article titled, Let 2014 Be the Year We Start Accepting Atheists, a report was given that now one in four Americans do not identify with religion. Within this group, 13 million are self-prescribed atheists and 33 million have no religious affiliation. The article goes on and says, A new church for the godless called Sunday Assembly has been attracting crowds in 14 U.S. cities. They offer fellowship, social interaction, and networking without the religious component. Scientific talks and pop songs replace the scripture and hymns. And their motto is, Live better, help often, wonder more. What's wrong with that? Question mark. End quote. Um, in a similar fashion, over spring break, I was sitting at my dad's house watching the Today Show, and they started discussing um, a commercial that was put out where they put random individuals of the opposite sex together and um, had them kiss, and they had never met each other before. And uh, the more even shocking thing to that than that to me was that after showing that commercial on the Today Show, they had a poll, and there was two answers on the poll. One was, this was beautiful, or something along those lines, that yes, this was good, or the, and the other was, no, this was disturbing, and we didn't like it. 67% of America said that this was a beautiful thing. And I guess what these two, this article and... Uh, that snippet on the Today Show have in common is the faithlessness in America, really to anything, is increasing. Um, however, I would remind us as an encouragement that God is faithful. Um, despite the swaying faithfulness of the ages, the time that we're in, despite the swaying faithfulness of our own hearts, God is faithful. He, remain, he remains true uh, to who he is and to what he has said. And so just as an introduction and to remind us of that, if you'd open your Bible to Deuteronomy 7, um, I will read a short passage for just a minute or two. We will look at it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, starting in verse 7 of chapter 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which, which I am commanding you today to do them. And so just some brief context to this. This is Moses' second address to Israel. Uh, he's just uh, relisted the Ten Commandments back in chapter 5. Um, and as we go into chapter 6 and 7, we really see God's faithfulness on display. Um, if you even just look at 7 verse 9 that I just read. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And I guess what I would emphasize from this is that God is reliable, he is true to his word, and he keeps his commandments. He, or I'm sorry, he keeps his, com his promises. He keeps his covenant. Um, however, we forget this. We often forget, and we have to be reminded. If you look back at chapter 6 even, uh, verses 20 to 23, 
It says, when your son asks you in a time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes of the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all of his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. And so again, when the, when the kids ask, hey, what, what is this about? He's commanding to say, hey, you tell him this. You tell him, remember, God had promised that he was going to do this, and he did it. God had promised it. Not only that, but he showed great signs and wonders. He, not only did he take us from Egypt, but he's delivering us into the promised land. And so God, um, he is faithful. And really, faithfulness defines him. It's not as if um, there's any other standard of faithfulness besides God himself. Faithfulness means that God will always be true to his word and true to his character. Again, he will always be true to his word and he will be true to his character. And for me, that is very comforting to know. Uh, really, the, the Bible is a book of God's faithfulness on display. And I wish that we had hours and hours and hours to spend um, discovering his faithfulness. But just a little bird's eye overview of some of the things that stood out to me in scripture. From Exodus to Joshua, we see uh, the fulfillment of the promise to deliver the people from captivity and into the promised land. In Joshua 4, some of you are familiar with this, God literally holds back the river and they cross and they pass the river in order to get to the promised land. And upon crossing the river, they turn back and the Lord commands them to put stones in the river to remember God's faithfulness, to remember that day when, when he helped them to cross the river by holding it back. Two chapters later, um, Joshua 6, uh, God says, march around the city seven times, right? You guys know the story of Jericho. God had told them to do this, and they did it. And what do you know? God was faithful. He was true to his word. In 1 Samuel 7, um, Samuel uh, is the prophet of God, and the Philistines uh, are, are coming to attack and God delivers them by, by causing this great thunder and this confusion. And so Samuel sets up a rock and he says, I raise this Ebenezer in order to remember God's faithfulness. Fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew 1. Matthew 1 and 2, the birth of the promised Messiah that was promised all through time to the Old Testament people, uh, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin. All these prophecies that were fulfilled at the the birth of Christ and then the life of Christ. The Gospels, right? Recording the life of Christ. How many prophecies did he fulfill in himself? Fulfilling God's, the fact that God is true to his word. He is faithful to his word. The resurrection, right? Christ conquers sin and death. Christ was the perfect display in a sense of God's faithfulness because he was the exact representation of God while on earth. And so not only his life, but then his death and resurrection remind us of God's faithfulness. The bread and the wine, how about, right? We, we celebrate communion in remembrance, in remembrance of the cross, in remembrance of, oh yes, God is faithful, he is true. And then all the way into Philippians 1, uh, verse 6, he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. And so, I mean, really, faithful, you can take faithful to mean a lot of things, which is why um, I can say that God's faithfulness is on display throughout the entire Bible. But uh, it is comforting to know that God is one, as Andy taught. He is one 
and he is unified in who he is. With that in mind, however, tonight we're going to, yes, we'll look at God's faithfulness, but really we're going to look at our call to be faithful. Now, this isn't exactly the same type of faithfulness um, because we can't be perfectly faithful. However, in the sense that God is unified, he is uh, true to his word, he is true to his commitments, in the same way, uh, I think that it's safe to say that we are called to do the same thing. We are called to be faithful to what we believe in. We are called to be faithful to uh, perhaps the calling even that we have been called to. And so our text will be Matthew 25, um, verse 14. However, on your way there, we're going to stop at a few places in Matthew just for a little bit of background. Um, so if you'd go to Matthew 21, within the time frame of Jesus' life and his time with the disciples, it's nearing the end. And in 21, 23, uh, Jesus enters the temple, we see, in 23, and right away his authority is questioned. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Um, I'm just going to kind of skim through this a little bit uh, just to give a little bit of background. So then you skip over to 2145 and um, the priests and Pharisees uh, sought to seize Jesus. And so they're already trying to seize him. Uh, The chapter of 22, Jesus begins, if you look at verse 2 of 22, he begins to talk about the kingdom of heaven. Um, He speaks on the kingdom of heaven, and down in 15, the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he had said. Um, Yet again, down in 23, the Sadducees uh, question him, and then the Pharisees question him once again in 34 through 40. Now, in 41 to 46, Jesus, I'm not going to get into the details of this, but basically Jesus displays that he knows scripture better than the scripture knowers in a sense. The experts of the Old Testament, the Pharisees, the religious people, Jesus stumps them all in a sense, referring back to the Old Testament and referring back to David. Uh, You can read that passage on your own time, but I highlight this because from this point on, it kind of seems to me as though the tides turn uh, and Jesus is no longer on the defense um, but he's on the offense now. And so in, in chapter 23, he launches into the, uh, a description of the judgment of the Pharisees. And I'll just kind of highlight these woe to you statements. If you look at 13 of chapter 23, it says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Uh, again, in 14, we see woe to you. 15, 16, 23, 25, 27, and 29. Um, he is pronouncing the judgment to the hypocritical religious leaders. And then right after that, he follows this by pronouncing the judgment that will come upon the nation of Israel. With that as background, chapter 24, he exits the temple and he goes to spend time with his disciples. Um, I'll start in 24 and read verse one through three. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to him to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all of these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so we enter into this section of scripture in Matthew 24 and 25 called the Olivet Discourse because it happened on the Mount of Olives. Uh, And really this entire discourse is launched by the disciples' question right there in verse three. Tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? 
Upon researching this, I actually found out that this is the longest response to a single question in all of Scripture. And so um, we're not going to look at the entire response. We're just going to look at a a little portion of it. But um, it's interesting because the Jewish people had been ruled over for a long time, right? We go all the way back to uh, the time they were captive to the Egyptians. And then you think about Daniel's time period, right? There was 10 tribes that were under the Assyrians and two tribes that were under uh, the Babylonians. Um, From there, they were ruled by the Persians, the Greeks. And at this time period uh, in the New Testament, Rome is controlling um, the Jewish people in a sense. They They have imposed their forces and are the government. And so it's no wonder that the Jews were often thinking about the future. They were often wondering what's gonna happen. And really to complement this, um, they knew the Old Testament scripture. They knew there was a promise of deliverance. And so there's somewhat of a uh, understanding for their question. Um, and yet when they ask, <laughs> they use this phrase, the end of the age in 24.3. I'm not really sure <laughs> if they knew what they were saying. They could have been referring to, oh, when will we not be captive to this, you know, the Romans anymore? Um, and yet it seems as though Christ takes it to mean the end, end of the age. Uh, this phrase, end of the age, refers to um, the second coming, um, when, when everything will come to a culmination in the end times, in a sense. And so Jesus takes this opportunity and launches into the Olivet Discourse, where he talks about the second coming, the kingdom of heaven, the tribulation, the final judgment, and the millennial kingdom. Um, this is right near the end of his three years with, this, with the disciples. So they'd already seen him do all the miracles. They'd followed him around. They'd already left their boats, their fish, whatever, their tax booth, and were following him. So they are likely uh, very well listening to him. Further, Jesus knows, he knows in his mind, I'm only a few days away. I mean, if you look at right after he gets done in 26 with the Olivet Discourse, uh, in 26.2, it says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. So just a little bit of context there. We are two days from the Passover in which at that time Jesus will be delivered over and essentially crucified um, during the Passover. And so he knows he's got minimal time left with his disciples and uh, we are left with this, the Olivet Discourse, and I'm excited. So if you would turn to Matthew 25, I'll start reading in verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on a journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also had received the one talent came up and said to him, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. 
You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, Matthew 25, we've got two parables. If you look in your Bible, we've got the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. The parable of the ten virgins is in em- emphasizing the readiness manifested in eagerly waiting for the Lord's return. And the parable of the talents that we will consider is uh, a manifestation of the readiness of working while the Lord is gone and waiting for his return. And so, we are looking in a sense at Uh, this parable that is encompassing stewardship and faithfulness. And as we return to this parable, I I really want to point out a few aspects, and you can follow on your note sheet or just listen, but the first will be the giving of the master. And so if you look in verse 14, uh, it says, just as a man is about to go on a journey who calls his own slaves and entrusts his possessions to them. What I want to point out here is that these are his own slaves and his own possessions. And so these are not just anyone, but these are the master's slaves. Um, further, he is not necessarily gifting to them anything. He's not leaving and saying, here's a present. He is entrusting to the slaves what is already his. And we'll talk about this a lot as we continue on, but um, in a sense, these talents are not their own. They are merely being stewards of someone else's talents. Um, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. And so we've got five to one according to the abilities, according to, in a sense, in a sense varying skill sets. What he has entrusted is not just anything, but it's essentially the, the man's assets and his entire business. So he's entrusting all of his estate uh, to, to these slaves. This isn't just like house sitting or as uh, Trina's going to do for Miss Kelly home, dog sitting. This is not that sort of idea. This is as if the man left his company to the slaves. And so you might be asking, well, what is a talent? You know, in today's culture, we think talent. Um, a talent is a measure of weight that was 60 to 80 pounds of gold or silver. It didn't really specify and it didn't really matter. Um, it's not like we think of it in today's culture. They've kind of skewed that word. A better way to maybe think of a talent, um, since parables often, their point is to illustrate something bigger. A talent can be thought of for us as an opportunity. And so that theme will kind of be, become true as we're reading through this. But think of talent as opportunity. Paul was familiar with this uh, in 1 Corinthians He uses actually that exact language. He says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Um, I planted, Apollos watered, but God uh, caused the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes growth. And so Paul notices, yes, these are oppor- I've been given opportunities from the Lord, and yes, I am a servant of the Lord. He recognizes both of those. Um, now, as we return to Matthew 25, the master undoubtedly entrusted these talents to his servants with hopes of a return. He expected to get a return on his investment. Like I said, parables were to illustrate a larger truth. Um, and in this case, what is, what is Jesus illustrating here? Who is the master? Well, the master is himself. He's speaking of himself going on a journey. 
Jesus takes a journey, right? This is undoubtedly talking about the time after his resurrection and before the second coming. So in other words, we are in the in-between period of what he's speaking of. Further, the slaves, right, the servants, since they are indeed his servants, are alleged believers within the church. And so anyone that names the name of Christ and that is within the church um, would be considered a servant. Now, as we'll look at in a moment, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are genuine believers, but these are professing uh, servants of Christ. Um, How about the fact, if you look at 15, it says, each was awarded according to his own ability. And so, like I said, the slaves would have had different skill sets. And in some cases, um, it probably would have even exceeded that of the master. Even when the master was there, uh, he might have left the entire operation of the estate to a certain slave. My mind just kind of even goes back to Genesis, uh, the story of Joseph, right? He's known for fleeing out and running, but he was, in a sense, a steward of his master's estate. In the same way, uh, these were stewards of the estate. These were stewards of their master's wealth. And so if we look at verse 16, I want to look at the faithful servants first. 16 and 17. It says, Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. And in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. So, they went, so this idea of trading, they would go into town and they would trade with the talents. Um, this would have been legal work, but very hard work. Um, it would have been it required intentionality. It would have required an active um, pursuit. It wouldn't just happen. You don't just make money. Um, this might be likened in our day to like a stock market or a stock broker in a sense. They were going in, maybe they were investing in um, commercial ventures. You know, the fishing business was big. Whatever it was, they were using their master's money with intent to gain him a profit. And the master wasn't, didn't want to just have the same when he returned. Um, so this parable carries over then, right? The, par- the purpose of the parable is to illustrate a larger truth. What does this mean to those who profess the name of Christ? Well, a measure of talent or opportunity has been awarded to each of us. And in like manner, all that we have been given is not our own. We are entrusted with uh, what is rightfully our masters. Our gifts, our influence, our money, knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, senses, reasons, intellect, memory, affections, privileges. All of these are talents that can be used for the Lord's glory, that can be used Uh, for his profit in a sense. And to those who use them faithfully, blessing is given. Look at verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more saying, Master, even trust me with five talents? See, I've gained five more. His master, master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And in 22, it says, Although also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And so if we're just looking at the faithful servants, we see they're awarded five and two, uh, respectively, and then they return uh, ten and four. And... Um, you know, if I think about jobs I've had or sports I've played where I was under a coach or a boss, 
There was those coaches that expected it to be done, and that was their expectation. They expected perfection. And when you're doing it right, you never received a encouragement or a commendation. Uh, it was just expected. And when you messed up, they came down on you hard. Maybe you guys can relate to that. Um, however, there was also that coach or boss you know, that would encourage you. And when you did good, he would say, hey, you're doing good. Keep it up, you know. And when you did bad, he would gently come and correct you and say, hey, you know, we need to do this a little bit different, but keep up the good work. And I can just remember, I can remember physically feeling the difference in those two scenarios of working for a boss or working for a coach that, man, that was encouraging and that wasn't just stone cold and hard. And the reason I bring that up is because I can only imagine that after working, after going out into the town with the master's talents and who knows how long he was gone for, right? This is talking about Christ's return, which is, it's been 2000 years and we're still waiting, but um, you know, who knows how long he was gone for. And yet when he returns, what does he say? He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I just think for us reading that, there's such a motivation behind that uh, to serve him. I mean, I think about that potentially more than I even should, but just wanting to be received. Hey, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, what's interesting to me is that the one who'd received five and the one who'd received two, they received the exact same reward. In fact, the wording is exactly the same, Um, which kind of leads to the conclusion that it's not based on uh, material profit, but it's based on faithfulness. (coughs) In God's economy, it's not relative to those around us, but it's relative to our own faithfulness with what we have been given. Some are saved, think of this even. Some people are saved when they're 10 years old. I'm gonna grab a sip of water for a sec. Some are saved when they're 10. Some are saved when they're 70. Some people uh, work 60 hours a week and are surrounded by unbelievers. Some people get the opportunity of coming to Bible college, right? And so it makes sense to me that it would, in God's economy, be about faithfulness rather than about mere profit or mere fruit. The fruit is relative to what you've been given. The expectation is relative to what has been entrusted to you. Further, when you add the Holy Spirit into this with believers, right, the Holy Spirit gifts us all differently. And so then again, there's even further uh, reason to believe that it is based on faithfulness, not on mere profit. First Peter four ten through 11 says, as each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. <coughs> Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which the Lord supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so whatever we do, we are to do so faithfully as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The two slaves um, were willing to invest everything, therefore proving their faithfulness by bearing fruit with what they had been entrusted with. And so I would ask, what was their reward though? Well, we see a few things here. That is not Matthew. The first aspect of their reward um, involved, like I talked about, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. And so we have a com- commendation of their master. And there's a sense in which you can kind of tell, even when they come to him in verse 20, there's an eagerness. Master, you entrusted us with five. See, I've gained you five more. There is an eagerness because their desire was to just please their master. Their desire was to just 
They wanted to please him. He, he left, and it says immediately they went and began trading. And so there, I can just, again, imagine the, the joy of receiving that commendation from their master. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can strike a chord with this and say, man, I just want to please you, Lord. I don't know what's going on in this life or what to do, but I just want to please you. Not all the time, but sometimes I feel like that, and I wish I did more. The second um, reward was to enter into the joy of the master. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And undoubtedly on the day of reckoning, when we will all stand before the Lord, whether it's when Christ returns or when we die, um, to those who have been faithful with what they've been given, faithful servants, it's going to be the best day of our life up to that point. It will be the best day of life up to our point. Imagine being with God, yet without sin, right? There's a sense in which we have communion with God now. We know God. We, we speak to him through prayer, and he speaks to us through his word. <coughs> and yet imagine that with, with no pride, no arrogance, no envy of others, no jealousy, uh, no anger. It's going to be... <laughs> It's going to be a sweet time. And so that will be the reward for the faithful servants. Further, I mean, I can just imagine being, you know, we were talking about this in Christology, being in the presence of Jesus, who in Revelation, the language is that he was standing as if slain, right? So John has this future vision, Jesus standing as if slain. So for all of eternity, there will likely be a picture of, of the cross before us for every day. We will constantly be reminded that we were forgiven of all of our sin. We were forgiven of a huge debt because we'll see Jesus standing as if slain. What a reward. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, there were other aspects to this, that being the unfaithful servant. So look at verse 18 and we'll consider him. It says, but he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Uh, now, I do want to point out one thing with this, even before we get to the return of the master, and that is that rather than making this public, he kept it secret. Rather than going and earning a profit, right, he selfishly hides it. Now, this may have been due to a plethora of reasons, apathy, uh, laziness, or just plain disregard for the master. In any case, what needs to be taken from this is um, that this was not acceptable. Uh, this was not acceptable. The master had entrusted with him his business. He had, it wasn't a gift. It was, hey, I'm leaving this to you. You need to use this. And this slave did nothing with it. He went and buried it in the background. Uh, maybe a way we can reckon this is think of a financial advisor, right? If you take money to a financial advisor um, or a financial investor and you say, hey, you know, can you do something with this money? Uh, my goal is to um, buy a house in 20 years or whatever. And you get back and you come to this guy in 20 years, I mean, with inflation, and whatnot, you're going to expect to have made some money. And it'd be like going to that financial advisor and him saying, oh, you know, I took your money and I went and buried it in a hole out back behind the office. Sorry, but here, here's what's yours. It just would not be acceptable. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so... Um, what is the carryover? What is the illustration? What is the illustration? Well, the church-going good person uh, that claims to be a believer, uh, for one, this is not even an atheist. We're not talking about atheists or agnostics here. We are talking about people that are within uh, the church that claim to be believers. 
that aren't running from God, and yet they're not pursuing God. They're not actively using their time, energy, money uh, for God's profit. They're selfish or lazy when it comes to the things of the Lord. Uh, and quite honestly, they, they're not regarding the master's best interest. Just like the slave that we're talking about in 18, they are not thinking of God's interest. They're thinking of themselves. They're just not thinking at all. They're just disregarding it altogether. And really simply put, they're not bearing any fruit. They're not bearing fruit. This is what it's about. Um, fruit is evidence of a true servant. Fruit is evidence of a true believer in a sense, right? You will know them by their fruit. Uh, and so in a sense, he's saying, when the Lord returns, he'll say, did you make a profit with what I left you? Well, let's read about this interaction. Look at verse 24. And the one also who had received the talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. So even just stopping here for a moment, this is the slave's uh, response or excuse in a sense. Um, and it's not eager, but if anything, it's fearful. And I wouldn't say it's fearful out of reverence, but it's fearful perhaps even out of resentment. And there are really two indications here that lead me to believe that this guy was not a true servant or as the illustration would lead to that this is not talking about a believer. This is talking about an unbeliever. And the first is immediately, what does he do? Well, he, he has a charge on the master's character, right? He says, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So he, he's thinking of him as unmerciful, unjust, maybe even a dishonest person. And I just can't help but think of uh, people within the church that are not believers, that have a limited knowledge of God. Um, they're quick to make false accusations. Their view is not correct. It's not based on scripture. So when something comes up, when a conflict arises, they're going to resort, resort to their own wicked uh, mind, which is going to perhaps lead them to say, yeah, God, God's this or God's that or God's that. Um, and so by this accusation, it seems that the slave did not know his master, especially since we know we're, he's talking about Christ. He didn't know his master. The second indication that this is an unbeliever is the lack of service shown in him not bearing any fruit. He wasn't serving God. He wasn't serving the master. Again, this is not even talking about a misuse of what we've been given. He didn't go and spend it on immoral things. Um, he didn't spend it on his own selfish desires, but rather there was just an apathy toward the stewardship that had been entrusted to him. And I can't help again, but think of unbelievers within the church. I know of several, not several, but I know of a few people uh, that come to Grace and they come here just to enjoy the preaching. They like good teaching. They're not believers. I don't, some of them might not even claim to be believers. Um, and yet they come because they like the preaching and they like the teaching. It's good. It is. It's good teaching because it's out of the Bible. Further, there's people that come and hang around uh, Grace or other churches or Cross Life because they enjoy the fellowship with believers. Right? There are several people, I mean, I would venture to say a large majority, have the Spirit of God within them. They are loving one another. They love people well. And so people come because they like those things. And yet, they have not made Christ the Lord of their own life. They have not surrendered to him themselves. 
and they do not serve him. Therefore, they're here, in a sense, self-serving. Um, believers will be faithful with what they have, and they, their desire is to please their master, not just outwardly doing these things to be seen, but inwardly, they want to please their master. Well, <coughs> look at 26 for the master's response to the slave. It says, but his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. So the master opens by, in a sense, calling him wicked and lazy. And for the two reasons that we looked at as for why uh, this text seems to be indicating this is an unbeliever, really the master addresses these two uh, things. First, he says, you're wicked, right? He just unjustly accused him of things that aren't even true. In a sense, that justifies the, um, the name wicked. He's making false accusations um, and lazy, being that he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't do anything with the talents that had been entrusted to him. Now, as I consulted different translations on this, uh, which is a good thing to do, he says, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. Really, some of the translations did a really good job with this by putting a question mark at the end of it or even um, putting an if. So let me read it this way. If you knew that I did not reap or that I repped where I did not sow, Yada, yada, yada. So the point is, is, the master is not necessarily agreeing with the slave, but he's kind of going along with it for a moment. And so follow me down this track for a second. The master is in a sense about to hang the slave by his own argument. The first scenario is, if indeed the slave believed the master to be a hard man, then this all the more should have led him to be active and earn a profit for him, right? Why did he not honor him? The slave by his own charge just said, uh, I believed you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And the master's not necessarily agreeing with it, but he's saying, okay, if you believe that, then why all the more did you not have a profit for me? And secondly, if the master reaped where he did not sow, well, the slave was sown, right? He was given one talent. And so if the master expects a, if again, the master expects a profit from someone that he didn't even give anything to, how much more should the slave by his own argument have produced a profit? He was given one and he would have known that. Again, one talent was 60 to 80 pounds. So this is considerable, um, a considerable amount. Further, the master says that he could have at least went and put it in the bank. And at this time, the Roman bank would have been the acting bank. And I found that it would have been about 6% simple interest for just going and dropping it in the bank. He would have gained 6%, 6% every year, 6%. At least the master would have had something while he was gone. Again, back to this financial investor thing, right? If, if, the, if the master is expecting a profit, and if I go and invest and I'm expecting a profit, and it's buried in the ground and I come back and it's the same, I'm going to come back and be like, well, I could have at least put it in the bank and at least gained my 0.1% or whatever the interest rates are nowadays. But um, yeah. In the end, the master takes the servant's own erring excuses and in a sense turns them around on him and uses his own argument to hang him by that. And in really any of the circumstances, what we know is that the result was not acceptable to the master by his response. 
And so starting in 28, the master continues his address, and yet it seems as though he's talking to the, the slave with one, and then he kind of somewhat turns to a crowd. Maybe it's, it's likely the other disciples. Uh, 28, he says, Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So to those who have, more shall be given. Uh, (laughs) When I first read that, it kind of seems like not fair or whatever, but if you think about it, to the one who is faithful with the opportunities that are presented to us, uh, more and more opportunities will be provided, allowing the opportunity to glorify the Lord more and more um, as we prove our faithfulness. And further, as we exercise our gifts that are uniquely given by the Spirit, uh, or our talents from the parable, um, we're going to abound in them. God will grant grace and further gifting in these areas. The phrase, you can't outgive God, certainly seems to, to be relevant in this situation. And I believe that there are opportunities available if we are willing. And so, 29, um, for to everyone who has more shall be given, uh, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. It, it seems to be going beyond the scope of the earthly lives that we live in now. Uh, in fact, primarily, um, uh, perhaps even this is talking about the millennial kingdom. If you consider the context, right, what do we know about the context right now? We're talking about end times, right? We're talking about a master that goes on a journey and comes back again, which is the second coming of Christ. And while the parable in Luke 19 is not the identical parable to this, it does give some insight because it's so similar. It was likely told two different times and yet meant to display the same thing. It indicates that the master will return after he has established his kingdom. And we know that Christ is going to return and establish his kingdom on earth. And so for time's sake, I won't elaborate, but uh, scripture indicates that we're going to be given further opportunity to glorify God in faithfulness during both the thousand-year reign on earth and also for eternity into the future. Um, To him who is faithful to glorify God now with the opportunities given, there will be an abundance of opportunities uh, during these two time periods. And I just, my mind automatically goes to the passage that talks about the crowns, receiving crowns, and yet what will we do with them? We'll cast them at the feet of our master. So, faithfulness now results in the opportunity to be more faithful and glorify him even more so in the future. Um, Yeah, verse 30 says, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servant that doesn't serve well is essentially useless to the master. If you think about it, uh, there's just not a need for him. Not that God needs us necessarily, even if we are faithful, but he has made us and entrusted us with the task of living out the gospel before men and before him. And to the one that doesn't do that, there's, I mean, I hate to say it, but there's just not a need for him. There's no, um, further, there's been no redemption for sin. There's been no reconciliation uh, for the sin that we constantly commit against God. And so it says that he will be thrown into outer darkness, thrown away from God. As I was studying this, I was thinking, okay, God's omnipresent. I know that. What does it mean to be away from God? And with the help of an older, wiser man, um, 
this is likely talking about the relational aspect of God. And so we know that God is omnipresent. In fact, um, hell will be a manifestation of God's judgment on unbelief. Heaven will be a manifestation of his mercy for those who have trusted in him. And so when, it, when scripture talks about being thrown away from God or a lack of his presence or into darkness, right? God is light and this, this slave is th- to be thrown into darkness. It's talking about a change in relationship now. He is away from God relationally um, in, in the intimate sense. There's no longer an intimate relationship there, but it is uh, one of judgment in order to uphold God's holy character, in order to uphold his perfection, uh, there must be judgment on sin. And so, um, in conclusion, I want to wrap up with a few points. One is, uh, kind of the way we started is, even in this parable, we notice that God is faithful. God is faithful to reward uh, those that are faithful because he rewards them both the same way. And yet he is faithful to judge those who are not faithful. God is the same and he will continue to, this is how it was recorded that God is 2,000 years ago. We know this is how God was in the Old Testament, um, judging the unjust and yet showing mercy to the just. And we know this is how God will be for eternity to come. 1 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Who God is is by no means swayed by man. Again, he will always be true to his character and what he has said. I'll read that verse again. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. The second point uh, in the conclusion is just to remember the result of faithfulness. Man, if we use our time, our energy, our mind space, strength, conversations, all of these can be used used for God's glory. And in a sense, that's what we are called to do. You know, guys, the reason I chose this passage is because I often struggle and I think, man, what do I got to do? What do I, you know, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I got the Bible. I got a ministry of wonderful people. What do I need to do? And I just get stressed. I need to be praying, doing this. You know what we're called to do? We're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful one day at a time. You know, I, I get caught up in, okay, well, maybe I need to go street preaching three times a week or I need to do all these things. And I, I just don't work well under that. But for me, and what this parable seems to be saying is, man, we need to be faithful to the Lord. We need to be faithful to just use the opportunities that he gives us for his glory, right? So if I'm sitting at a, at a table and there's an unbeliever that comes and sits by me, I'm not going to fear man more than I'm going to fear God. I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. I'm going to be faithful and use that opportunity. And so I guess there's another encouraging fact. Um, we're all familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, yet we forget about verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so we're prepared for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What does that mean? That means all we need to do is be faithful. God's already gone ahead of us in time and prepared our entire lives before us. We just need to be faithful to walk in them um, and therefore glorify God. That just takes so much, so much uh, stress off of me, I guess you could say. And I hope it does the same for you to think in that regard. Uh, and then thirdly, um, the result of unfaithfulness that we just saw. To the one who is lazy and careless and apathetic with the talents, really with the life that we've been given, um, you've been warned in a sense. And I'm not saying that from me. I'm saying from the scripture, there is warning uh, to, the, to the unfaithful. 
and I would just remind us that these aren't just words on a page. This isn't just a parable, but this is an illustration of what is to come. This is an illustration of our very lives. And so I've got to ask, uh, which will you be? The faithful or the unfaithful? First uh, Corinthians three thirteen and 14 says that each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Guys, we will not even come close to being judged on the money that we make, on the size of the house that we have, um, on how successful we were in our career. What we will be judged on is our faithfulness. Is Are we a faithful servant of Christ? And so I'll close with 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. This is Paul addressing the church in Corinth. And he says, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Would you bow with me as I pray? And we pray together. Father, um, Lord, this is your word. Uh, This is the word of God. And Father, I pray that we would take it seriously. Lord, for myself and for everyone else in here, I would ask that we would examine ourselves, Lord. That we would uh, test and see. Father, would you give us uh, grace? Lord, would you forgive us? Would you give us the ability to serve you, God? Lord, I pray that we would, uh, in a sense, repent in our minds, Lord, to serve you faithfully. Father, to live a life full of using our opportunities, using opportunities given from you, using um, all that we have been entrusted with for your glory. God, would you gain glory for yourself through this group? Father, we want to magnify your name, Lord. We want to live as if, um, Lord, we love you, and therefore we serve you. And Father, upon your return, Lord, I pray for us that... uh, it would be true that you would be able to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others, but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.